Hello, one and all, and welcome to the Backtracker History Show with me, Alice. In this special festive edition, we'll be looking at various things that we only do at this time of year. So prepare yourself to follow me through the archives as we find out those nuggets of information that you can share with your friends and family over the Christmas turkey. And if you like this show, you could share it on social media or even leave feedback and a rating wherever you get your podcasts. Anyway, let's get on with the show. The other day I was sat down with my Santa hat on eating a mince pie and I realised that there are a lot of traditions that only occur around this time of year and I wanted to look into them in more depth. And I'm going to start off with why do we eat turkey at Christmas? Well, in a recent survey, 87% of British people believe that Christmas would not be the same without a traditional roast turkey. Although turkeys aren't native to the UK, they have been eaten in Britain for hundreds of years. There is documentation of turkeys being imported into the UK in the early 16th century, around 1524, according to the Chronicle of the Kings of England. British merchants brought them from Spanish conquistadors who brought the birds back from Mexico, where they had been domesticated from the wild species over many years by indigenous Mexicans. And Henry VIII was apparently the first British monarch to enjoy turkey on Christmas Day. Before then, people used to eat geese, boar's head and even peacocks. Back then, turkeys were eaten instead of cows and chickens because the farmers needed their cows more for their milk and needed their chickens for the eggs, which at the time were more expensive than they are today. So instead of killing off one of their livestock for Christmas, they'd have a turkey as it was something different and they could save their livestock to produce more milk and eggs. But it took over 400 years for the turkey to go from a speciality luxury item to the most popular festive centrepiece across the UK. Coupled with Edward VII making the turkey a fashion statement at Christmas and Queen Victoria reopening trade with the USA, turkeys became the in thing. Here's some more information about turkeys. The Norfolk black turkey breed is thought to be directly descended from the early turkey breeds and was bred in the UK for over 200 years before eventually being transported back to the Americas with European colonists. However, the breed has gradually declined in popularity and is now relatively rare in both the UK and the USA. Although in the 16th century, turkey was very expensive. As turkey farms spread across the UK and the price came down, eating turkey at Christmas took off in popularity. But it wasn't until the 19th century that turkey became the standard Christmas fare for families around the country. In the Victorian era, birds raised in East Anglia were often herded along drovers' roads to London to be sold fresh in time for Christmas. Daniel Defoe recorded that 150,000 turkeys were driven from East Anglia to London each year, a journey that took three months to complete. To protect their feet on this long journey, Turkeys were fitted with leather or sacking boots, while geese had theirs tarred and sanded. In London itself, many working class citizens banded together to form goose clubs, 
as a way to make the Christmas meal more affordable. Each individual paid a few pence a week towards the purchase, which was then shared out between them. Today in the UK, we eat around 10 million turkeys every year for Christmas time. 25% of British people buy their turkeys months in advance. And a survey shows that top three most popular ways to serve leftover Christmas turkey are sandwiches, soups and stews, or salads. 20% of British people admit to paying more for their turkey for extra quality. Word of the week. Get ready, because this week I give you... Rum ball. A rum ball isn't just one of those rather potent sweets. It's also a feast that's served the day before Christmas. In fact, rum ball night is the old 18th century nickname for Christmas Eve. What is the best Christmas present in the world? A broken drum. You just can't beat it. Now, one last leftover bit of turkey trivia is about a chef called Ben Spaulding, who has created something for those with more money than sense who really want to impress their guests. Spaulding has set himself the task of creating the world's most expensive Christmas dinner, available for just one group of four for an eye-watering total of £125,000. What do you get for that much money? Well, you'll get a £37,000 bottle of champagne that predates World War I, served naturally in diamond-studded champagne flutes, a limited-edition Japanese watermelon costing £2,600, and beans of coffee berries excreted by the Asian palm civet cat. There are other things like Wagyu beef heart, gold leaf, caviar, truffles, but basically you're getting an old bottle plonk some fruit, and cat poo coffee. I don't know about you, but I'm going to stick with the turkey. But now, my friends, sit back and relax as we talk about Father Christmas. Saint Nicholas, a 4th century archbishop in what is now Turkey, is the patron saint of girls and boys, thanks to various stories of his miracles raising children from the dead saving girls from prostitution and giving presents. Over the years in Britain, he has become associated with the figure we now know as Father Christmas and, for the last 150 years, the Americanized Santa Claus. English personifications of Christmas were first recorded in the 15th century, with Father Christmas himself first appearing in the mid-17th century in the aftermath of the English Civil War. The Puritan-controlled English government has legislated to abolish Christmas, considering it papist and had outlawed its traditional customs. Royalist political pamphleteers, linking the old traditions with their cause, adopted Old Father Christmas as a symbol of the good old days, a feasting and good cheer. Following the Restoration in 1660, Father Christmas's profile declined. His character was maintained during the late 18th century and into the 19th century by the Christmas folk plays later known as Mummer's Plays. He would later appear on pamphlets praising the revels of the past above the gloom of the present day. However, it was only during the Victorian period 
that this rather obscure figure from folklore took on the prominence that we know today and began being identified as a gift giver. In 1822, St Nicholas was added into the mix of this Christmas character when Clement Seymour drew on the legends of St Nick in his poem Towards the Night Before Christmas, which led to the creation of the modern Santa Claus. Thomas Hervey's The Book of Christmas from 1836, illustrated by Robert Seymour, highlights the yearning that the era had for Christmases of old. Hervey said of the lost charitable festival, Old Father Christmas, at the head of his numerous and uproarious family, might ride his goat through the streets of the city and the lanes of the village, but he dismounted to sit for some few moments by each man's hearth, while some or another of his merry sons would break away to visit the remote farmhouses or show their laughing faces at many a poor man's door. Robert Seymour's illustrations in Hervey's book shows old Christmas dressed in a fur gown, crowned with a holly wreath, and riding a yule goat. It took many years for authors and illustrators to agree that Father Christmas costume should be portrayed as red, although that was always the most common colour, although he could sometimes be found in a gown of brown, green, blue or white. Mass media approval of the red costumes came following a Coca-Cola advertising campaign that was launched all the way back in 1931. The Big Bristol to London the Stroll. Big Bristol to London Stroll. The Big Bristol to London Stroll. Hello and welcome to the Big Bristol to London Stroll, where we take you along the scenic routes via canals on a gentle walk to our capital. Along the way, we'll discuss the places we see and anything we spot that takes our fancy. Sometimes we're even joined along the way by family and friends. So come join us as we take the Big Stroll. The closer we get to London, the more history there is to discover. And I was absolutely fascinated with Runnymede, the place where the Magna Carta was signed in 1215 by King John. A few steps away and you could be in America. No, seriously, you could be in America because nearby is a seven-ton block of engraved Portland stone in a symbolic acre of land donated to the United States by the Queen in 1965 following the assassination of JFK. And it really is a lovely spot. Now, these historical sites are on the National Trust property. So is Anchorwick U on the other side of the river. It's close to the ruins of St Mary's Priory, a Benedictine nunnery built in the 12th century. It is a male tree that has a girth of 8 metres and is at least 1,400 years old, but possibly as much as 2,500 years old, and is said to be where King Henry VIII courted Anne Boleyn. Also in National Trust grounds, beyond the woods of Cooper's Hill, you'll find a memorial inscribed with the names of 20,456 men and women of the Allied forces who lost their lives in World War II on missions and have no known graves. Carry on down the river under the A30, it's all quite industrial to your right, and then there's Staines-upon-Thames, which is very busy. 
we came across Church Island, which is thought by some historians to have been the site of the Roman bridges across the Thames recorded as a waypoint on the Devil's Highway. When we walked down the high street of Staines-upon-Thames to find somewhere to have our dinner, we came across a rather unusual statue of what looks like two men holding a roll of carpet. It's not until you find out that Staines-upon-Thames was the major producer of linoleum that you realise the significance. This town has seen recent sorrow. In 1972, it was the site of the Staines air disaster, at the time the worst air crash in Britain until Lockerbie. The crash was commemorated in June 2004 by the opening of a dedicated garden near the crash site, created at the request of relatives, and the unveiling of a stained glass window at St Mary's Church, where the memorial service was held. What goes oh, oh, oh? Santa, walking backwards. Hello, everybody. How are you doing today? My name is Michael Rocco. My name is Raf Stitt. And who are we, Raf? We are the host of Straight to DVD. We are a film review joker memeing podcast. That's who we are. Oh, yeah, that's what we do. This is who we are. This is what we do. Come listen to us. You can find us on Instagram at Straight to DVD Pod. That's the number two. You can also find us on Apple Music and Spotify. Where else can they find us, Raf? They can find us wherever they find podcasts, wherever you listen, whether it's, like you said, Apple, Spotify, maybe Google Play. Twitter? Uh, they can find us on Twitter. Uh, same handle, at Straight to DVD Pod. Fantastic. You can follow the two of us on Instagram. Michael, what's your handle? At Michael underscore Rocco underscore. At Raf Stitt, all one word. We uh, we hope you come come join us for some movie chatter, some banter, hopefully some laughs. Hopefully. Hopefully. Yeah. That's about it. That's, that's it. I, there's nothing else for us to tell you. That's all we've got. So uh, we hope to uh, see you all soon. Check us out. Well, goodbye. The next thing I wanted to find out more about was mistletoe. Before it became a romantic symbol, mistletoe was considered so sacred in ancient Britain that it could only be cut by druids with a golden sickle. The plant had connotations of peace, and people who met underneath it were forbidden from fighting, even if they were bitter enemies. Homes decorated with mistletoe offered shelter and protection to anyone who entered. Even to this day, it's very rare to see a sprig of mistletoe inside a church, thanks to its pagan leadings. To the druids of the old religions, it was a potent symbol of fertility, and the Greeks and the Romans regularly parlayed peace beneath its bounds. From the Middle Ages, our ancestors hung it above the threshold to ward off evil spirits, and it was the Victorians who helped give the plant its modern, smoochy tradition. Mistletoe is the floral emblem of the US state of Oklahoma and the flower of the UK county of Herefordshire. In the UK, the main mistletoe event of the year is the Tenbury Wells Mistletoe Festival in Worcestershire. In Norse mythology, Loki tricked the blind god Hoda into murdering his own twin brother, Balder, with an arrow made of mistletoe wood. In the story, Balder's mother, Frigg, casts a powerful magic to make sure that no plant grown on earth could be used as a weapon against her son. The one plant the spell does not reach is the mistletoe, as it does not grow out of the earth, but out of a tree's branches. 
when the scheming Loki heard about this, he makes a spear out of mistletoe wood, the spear that would eventually kill Balder. In another interpretation of the origins, Frigg declares the mistletoe to be a symbol of love after her son's death and promises to kiss anyone who passes underneath it, which kind of links to its connotations today. The tradition of kissing under the mistletoe started between 1720 and 1784 in England. In Charles Dickens' Pickwick Papers, he tells of younger ladies that screamed and struggled and ran into corners and threatened and remonstrated and did everything but leave the room until some of the less adventurous gentlemen were on the point of desisting when they all at once found it useless to resist any longer and submitted to be kissed with a good grace. It is said by historians that women of the time believed they had to accept kisses from men or risk bad fortune. And lastly, the Romans associated mistletoe with peace, love and understanding and hung it over doorways to protect the household. Hanging mistletoe was part of the Saturnalia festival, the ancient Roman festival and holiday in honour of the god Saturn, held on the 17th of December of the Julian calendar and later expanded with festivities through to the 23rd of December. What did the stamp say to the Christmas card? Stick with me and we'll go places. Back in the day facts. So let's start off with the 11th of December 1936, when Edward VIII announces in a radio broadcast that he is abdicating the British throne to marry Wallace Simpson. On the 12th of December 1792 in Vienna, Ludwig van Beethoven, aged 22, receives his first lesson in music composition from Franz Joseph Hayden. December 1950, James Dean begins his career with an appearance in a Pepsi commercial. On the 14th of December 1542, Princess Mary Stuart succeeds her father, James V, and becomes Queen Mary I of Scotland at only six days old. On the 15th of December 1840, Napoleon Bonaparte receives a French state funeral in Paris 19 years after his death. And on the 16th of December 1907, as a gesture of the US's new presence as a world power, President Theodore Roosevelt sends the Great White Fleet on a round-the-world cruise, visiting ports internationally. And just like that, we've come to the end of the show. Now, as always, I'd love to thank those who brought the stories to life. And this week is only a short cast of two, which is Molly Jeffries and Joe Wilson, both from St. Stephen's Drama Group, right here in Bristol. As you know, this show is edited from a radio show that is on Bradley Stoke Radio 
in Bristol, England. And as it's Christmas, I thought I should do something a bit lighter for their shows. But seeing as you're listening to the podcast, I'm going to give you something a little extra. This is just a small number of things that happened in Durant, Bryan County, Oklahoma. It's not much, but if you're feeling that your Christmas festivities aren't going as planned, then this should help. John Landrum, a clerk in the bank at Durant, had his hand torn off by the premature explosion of a giant firecracker. In another incident, a baby who was two years old and called Van Hoy picked up a lighted firecracker which exploded, burning his hand severely. In another incident, Mayor Bowles was strolling down the street when someone pointed a 22 caliber pistol at him and fired. The bullet hit him in the leg and the person at the other end of the gun was one of those didn't know it was loaded idiots, as the newspaper says. And if you think that's bad, Jimmy Calhoun, 10 years old, mixed coal oil and gunpowder in a bottle and just to see what would happen, lit it. Needless to say, it took the physicians several days to get the pieces of glass out of his body. That small portion of darkness came from 1909. Just to let you know that there'll be two more shows after this, and then I'll be taking a break for two weeks over the Christmas period. Thank you for listening to the Backtracker History Show podcast with me, Alice. This has been specially edited from a Bradley Stoke radio show in Bristol, England. And if you liked it, please leave a rating and maybe a comment. And if you'd like to support the show with a donation, however small, you can go to ko-fi.com, spelt K-O hyphen F-I. And if you're interested in buying merchandise featuring the show's logo, then pop over to tpublic.com, where you'll find lots of things to choose from. And if you want to get in touch with me, it's perfectly easy. You'll be able to find me on Twitter or Facebook by looking for at Backtracker UK, with a capital B, a capital T and a capital UK. Or you can email me direct at info at backtracker.co.uk. So until next time, guys, take care and look after each other. <laughs>